Thank you, Errol and Suling, the music team and the tech team for serving us. Thank you, thank you everyone for joining us today. Uh, let's go to God in prayer together, shall we? Father, indeed, we can do nothing without you. So we humbly come before you to ask that may you help my feeble lips to preach your words faithfully. May you help our ears to listen and our hearts to believe and our lives to be live in such a way that you will glorify your name. We ask all these in Jesus' name. Amen. So even as the number of COVID cases in Singapore and elsewhere continues to rise, I pray that you are well and safe from wherever you are tuning in from. Now, what would you do if you have a loved one stuck in an overseas country where there's a surge in the number of new COVID cases and the hospitals are overwhelmed? Well, you try to get them out, right? Perhaps to a safer country like Singapore, where our numbers are relatively lower. So earlier this year, when the number of COVID cases in Malaysia exceeds 5,000 new daily infections a day, we were rather concerned about my mother-in-law, who's in her 70s and living all alone in Malaysia. She also had health issues which requires medical attention and perhaps even a surgery. As the hospitals in Johor were overwhelmed in attending to COVID patients, we were extremely worried for her well-being and wanted to get her out, of, uh, out to Singapore as soon as possible for medical treatment and to care for her. But of course, we know that due to border restrictions, is the mic okay? It's mic. But due to border restrictions, she can't come into Singapore unless we apply for a Singapore entry permit for her. She also had to pay, or rather, we also had to pay $2,000 for her SHN at a hotel. She's also required to do a PCR swap test, uh, which is to be done in Malaysia. But the most challenging part wasn't applying for a permit, but to convince her to come out to Singapore to stay with us. Because, why? She was afraid of the dreaded swap test. And she can't bear to leave the familiarity of her home. And she hates staying alone in a hotel for 14 days. Of course, speaking about irony, she has been living alone in Johor all these months. So after much tears, prayers and persuasion from my wife, my mother-in-law finally agreed to come over to Singapore. So we gladly paid the $2,000, applied the entry permit for her, and she also did the necessary swap test. So that fateful day arrived and she packed her bags, made her way to the Malaysia immigration checkpoint with swap test result in one hand and her passport in the other. She presented them to the Malaysia uh, immigration officer. But to her utter horror, they didn't let her pass. Why? Well, you see, there was, at the time, there was a recently implemented uh, second uh, Malaysia, uh, movement control order, or MCO in Malaysia. So now she requires an exit permit from Malaysia to even leave the country. And the average waiting time for the approval of the exit permit, between one to three months. 
Then it dawns upon her that she will need to do a new COVID swab test because her current uh, test result would have expired by then. And we, here in Singapore, we will need to write to the Singapore Immigration Authorities to appeal for the extension of a current entry permit into Singapore. Otherwise, our $2,000 would have been forfeited. We also emailed uh, a Malaysian MP to appeal for his help to expedite the processing of an exit permit application. And so, by God's grace, it was approved after 14 days. So, she rushed to do a, her second swab test in Malaysia, and we managed to get her out to Singapore, where she did her third swab test upon arrival, did her 14 days SHN in the hotel, and did her fourth swab test one day before the end of her SHN. So, the entire process to get her out was tedious. It was filled with uncertainties, and was emotionally draining for my wife, to say the least. And we are just so glad that the whole ordeal is over, and she's finally safe with us in Singapore. But guess what? After staying with us for barely one month, she told us that she missed the smell of a bed in Malaysia, and she wanted to go back home. Well, if my wife would go through the, this length of hassle just to get her mum out of Malaysia to Singapore because of her love for her, then how much more would God do to save his people out of slavery from Egypt, from under the hands of a wicked Pharaoh? Today I'll be preaching from Exodus chapter 13, verse 17 to 14, verse 31, and the sermon title is entitled, seeing God's rescue plan clearly. Please keep your Bibles open when you follow the sermon along. And we will learn from to this passage what precious lessons uh, we can learn about God from his rescue of Israel. So for us, just to do a quick recap of uh, last week's sermon, uh, we saw how as part of God's rescue plan, he sent the 10th and final plague upon the Egyptians, which struck down all the firstborn of men and beasts in the land of Egypt. The Lord executed judgment on all the gods of Egypt, but he passed over and spared the firstborn of the Israelites because of the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And also in Exodus chapter 13, verse 1 to 16, which I won't be covering today, God commanded the consecration of the firstborn of Israel that all the males that first opened the womb, both of men and beasts, belong to the Lord. And so, so today, we'll continue looking at Exodus chapter 13, verse 17 onwards. Verse 17 and 18, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for better. First, we see God's presence with his people. God didn't just throw them an escape plan and leave them to figure it out all by themselves. But as a loving shepherd, God led his people out of Egypt. And although God didn't lead them by the nearest 
or the shortest or the most logical route by human standards. And at, at times, they, there may even be delay. They even had to do a stop and a backtrack in chapter 14, verse 2. But they were traveling on the right path because God was leading them. It is the route that God has purpose for them. And we see that God gave them two visual assurances. The first is the curious case of Joseph's bones, seen in verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph, Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So what's so assuring about some old bones? Well, to understand the full significance of Joseph's bones, we need to look back at Genesis chapter 50, verse 24 and 25. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So in this passage, we see that God made a two-part promise to Joseph. The first is that God will visit Israel and bring them up out of Egypt. And the second part of the promise is God will bring them to the promised land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so Joseph made the Israelites swear that they will carry his bones out of Egypt the day God fulfills his promise. And here we see the first part of God's promise has now become a reality. So they can be fully confident that God will fulfill the second part of his promise of bringing them into the promised land. Joseph's bones was a visual reminder of God's faithfulness. And then we see in verse 21 and 22, God's assurance comes in the form of a pillar of cloud and fire, a spectacular theophany of his presence. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. That they might travel by day and by night, the pillar of fire by day, and the pillar of fire, sorry, the, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So God was with his people and his presence never left them. Although they may not see God's intent clearly, but they can trust him fully. Moving on to chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Hahiroth, between Megdo and the sea, in front of Baal Ziphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Verse 3, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. So here we see God commands his people to turn back and encamp by the sea, setting up a trap for Pharaoh. But the irony is that Pharaoh will think that the Israelites are trapped in the wilderness and they are sitting ducks ripe for his taking. And here we see in verse 4, God revealed his 
plan to Moses. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And we see God's plan in motion. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he changed his mind. In verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Over here we see that Pharaoh only saw that Egypt has lost their primary source of free labor. Israel was vital to their economy because Egypt was built on the back of these Hebrew slaves. And so Pharaoh hunted them down like a pack of dogs. In verse 6 and 7, we see that Pharaoh sent forth his best chariots and horsemen on a hunt, thinking that he's up against a bunch of weak former slaves. But what Pharaoh feared to see is that Israel was precious to God, precious enough for God to redeem her out of Egypt. And now Israel has a new master, Yahweh, who's leading them on their pilgrimage to worship him. But Pharaoh tried to wrestle them back as slaves. So brothers and sisters in Christ, you see the battle is not between Pharaoh and Israel, but Pharaoh versus Yahweh. And now the joke is that Pharaoh has set himself up against Yahweh, Israel's God, the God of plagues, with mere chariots, horsemen and troops. What lessons can we draw from this section? Well, COVID-19 has brought out the best and the worst of humanity. Recently, there were some really upset, uh, upsetting news in the papers about racism in Singapore. The first is incident uh, is about a, an Indian lady who was attacked and kicked in the chest and subject to racist remarks near Chua Chukang. And the other is about a man who allegedly hurled offensive racial remarks at an Indian family at Pasiris Park. As God's new covenanter people, if we were to treat people of a particular race as lesser than us and we detest them, or if we deem the foreign domestic helper, a foreign worker, the cleaning uh, the cleaner aunties at our food courts or our schools merely as cheap labors and not as our equals and exploit them only for our personal benefit, then we too have hardened our hearts like Pharaoh. Are we so blind to the fact that God is their master, their creator, that they too are precious to him because they are created in his image? No, that when you treat your fellow humans worse than dogs, like Pharaoh, you are setting yourself up against God. Next, we see although God has previously shown his powers in the ten plagues and shared his rescue plan, that his rescue plan will end in him getting glory over Pharaoh. In verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, 
the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Despite God's presence with them, all the Israelites saw was the Egyptian army before them. And although the Israelites were lightly equipped for battle, seen in chapter 13, verse 18, but they were no match for the mighty Egyptian army with the state-of-the-art chariots. They saw God's rescue plan as utterly foolish and that following Moses was their worst mistake. So they cried out to the Lord in despair. Then they turned and hurl veer accusation of God at Moses. In verse 11 and 12, the Israelites said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Despite God's visible presence in the form of the pillar of cloud and fire, they were blind to God's plan and his promises. They failed to see the God equation that this is God's rescue plan. But at the first sight of trouble, they were prepared to give up on God and his mighty acts in Egypt. They were prepared to forsake his presence and his rescue and return to be slaves under Pharaoh. Although the Israelites were physically free, but they still retained the mindset of a slave, all ready to kowtow to their former master. You see, you can take Israel out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of Israel. Perhaps without God, they only have two options before them. Death in the wilderness or being enslaved forever by the Egyptian. But with God in the equation, the life don't have to end that way. God will fight for them. He will save them from the hands of the enemies and extinguish the threat by utterly destroying them. But for the Israelites, God is so near yet so far away. Brothers and sisters in Christ, is God so near, yet so far away for us? If you don't keep your eyes on God, you too will crumble when the first sight of trouble comes your way. When a notice of retrenchment comes, when an illness, when you have an illness, or, you're, you, had a, or you have a failed relationship, we are prone to despair instead of turning to God and trusting in Him. When we meet temptation, perhaps in NS, where everyone uses vulgarity, or perhaps when you're traveling overseas, nowadays you don't, but if you're overseas alone, you're tempted. Or perhaps in school, you face peer pressure from your classmates to do things which are not pleasing to God. Do we stand firm or do we submit like the Egyptian? Well, with God in control, your current circumstances is not final. God has the final say in, in your life and mine. However, Moses saw God, 
despite facing the same threat from the Egyptians, despite him standing before the Egyptian army, Moses had his eyes fixed firmly on God. In verse 13 and 14, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. In this passage, do you know what Moses is telling them to do? Essentially, Moses is telling them to do nothing. That's right. Moses is telling them to do nothing. Why? Moses, they were, they feared greatly. Moses called them not to fear. Fear not. And then he asked them to stand firm or stand still. See, that's the last thing you want to do when you see the Egyptian army and their chariots charging down at you, right? But Moses called them to stand still. And he wants them to see that salvation belongs to the Lord, that God will fight for them. God will do all the work to save them. They are to stay out of his way and witness God's mighty act. In other words, salvation is purely by God's grace alone. And in verse 14, Moses tells them, you have only to be silent or to put it bluntly, they are to shut up and listen and don't listen to their own voice of fear. Moving on, in verse 15 and eight to 18, So the Lord commanded the people to move forward, and Moses is to lift up his staff, stretch his hand over the sea to divide it, and the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And God, God will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will pursue after the Israelites and God will emerge victorious and get glory over Egypt. And in verses 19 to 20, And the angel of, the, of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went back behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. In this passage, we see a very spectacular scene. The clouds move from the front to the back. God, like a mighty warrior, stands in between the enemy and his people. Now I can imagine this scene, no? it's like almost like a scene from Lord of the Rings where Gandalf stood in between Balrog and the hobbits and declared, you shall not pass. The enemies now need to get past God before they can even touch the Israelites. And God will not permit Pharaoh to hurt his people anymore. It is a showdown between Pharaoh and God. Verse 21, Then Moses stretched his hand over the sea, and God drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall 
on their, li- on their right hand and on their left. Verse 23, The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptians' forces and threw the Egyptians' forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Indeed, the Lord will fight for his people, just as what God had said. The sea parted with Moses' outstretched arms, revealing dry ground for the Israelites to escape. And just as what God had foreordained, the Egyptians with hardened hearts pursue after them. But their heavy chariots got stuck in the muddy seabed. And when morning comes, they probably then realize that they were in the midst of the sea with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And finally, they will have saw the pillar of cloud and fire up in the sky before them. They now clearly see who they were fighting against. Verse 25 tells us, the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. The Egyptians saw what the Israelites failed to see. Then it dawns on the Egyptians that they are so dead. They panic, but it was too late. Verse 26 and 27, God then instructs Moses to stretch out his hand over the sea again. Then the water may come back down upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. God, through Moses, unleashed the chaos of the sea upon the Egyptians. As the sea waters surrounding them suddenly collapse and tons of water comes crashing down upon them, the sea quickly engulfed them and turn into a watery grave. All of them died. Not one of them remained. This is poetic justice of the highest order. As previously, the Egyptians drowned the Hebrew baby boys in the river Nile. And now Egypt has lost her finest fighting men in the Red Sea. God's rescue plan is a plan of judgment against the wicked. He enticed Egypt to pursue after the Egyptians, sorry, to pursue after the Israelites into the sea, thus resulting in their drowning. While at the same time, God's rescue plan is a plan of grace for his covenantal people. As God continues to uphold the sea walls to provide a safe passage for Israel to pass through. And in this passage, we see echoes of the creation account of Genesis chapter 1. At creation, God brought order to chaos through his words. God spoke and light appeared to dispel the darkness. God spoke and separated the waters often associated with chaos to reveal dry ground. And in chapter 14, the Egyptians had darkness and the Israelites had light. And upon the Egyptians, God unleashed the chaos of the sea and drowned every single one of them. While the Israelites walked through the sea bed 
on dry ground to safety. What lessons does this section have for us? The Egyptians, beginning with Pharaoh, stubbornly rejected God and his, and his words, and chaos descended upon Egypt in the form of the ten plagues. There was no more light. There was darkness. The creatures no longer submit to the dominion of men, but they invade the houses and them. And now the continuous hardening of their hearts against God brought about the chaos of the sea upon them. Slide comes up. We see that the rejection of God and his words bring about chaos in our lives. Or more accurately, God's words bring order to our chaotic lives. In our marriage, in our homes, when God commands us to love one another, but when we choose to reject God and his words and his commands, what happens? Well, when we choose not to love our siblings, jealousy arises between siblings. It brings about strife and conflict, backstabbing, hurt and quarrels in the family. If we choose not to love our God-given wife or husbands, and we choose to disobey God's words, and we choose adultery instead, chaos descends upon our family. We will hurt our children, our parents, and all those who trusted us. As, as a pastor, we have, I've uh, ministered to many uh, in the ARPC, and many marriages have broken because couples refuse to submit to the Lord and to obey His words, and so chaos descends upon their family. So what did God's rescue plan accomplish? We see that God's rescue plan resulted in His praise and worship. In chapter 14, verse 30 and 31, thus the Lord saved Israel that, that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. God's plan happened just as he said it would. And it accomplished its purpose of making God known and revealing his glory. We see that that day, Israel knew the Lord better, that he is a faithful God who honours his covenant. As they experienced his grace and saw the salvation of the Lord that day, they worshipped him, they feared him. Egypt knows the Lord that day, that he is the God who judges the wicked, as they have been utterly destroyed and defeated. The nations, the other nations, know the Lord that day. And amazingly, we see many years later in the book of Joshua, chapter 2, verse 9 to 11, this is Rahab speaking to the spies. She said to the man, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up 
the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you dev devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, his God in, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. See, brothers and sisters in Christ, God's rescue plan changes life because it reveals his glory and leads us to reverence and worship of him. The Exodus, which includes the plagues, the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, is a central part of Israel's understanding and worship of God. And these events and allusions to them will be mentioned many more times in the Old Testament. It shaped Israel's understanding of who God is. And likewise for us, Jesus' salvific plan, act of going to the cross, is the greatest rescue story ever. It is central in understanding who God is and call to God revealing his love for us. Jesus and the cross is the crux of our worship of God and it shapes our understanding of who God is. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if your life is untouched by God's rescue plan for us and is filled with a, with a series of thanklessness and indifference towards him, then perhaps you haven't understood the significance of the cross. Jesus dying on the cross may seem like foolishness to some, but Jesus is God's rescue plan for the world. Romans chapter 4, verse 5 tells us, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who, justif who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Like the Israelites, we can't save ourselves. In fact, in Romans 4, we are called to do nothing. The one who does not work is telling us that we are to do nothing but to believe in him. And if we were to believe in him, our faith is counted as righteousness. And we also see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Here we see that salvation is by grace alone. It is God's gift to us. That's what grace means. It's not a result of our works, so that no one may boast, so that God gets all the praise and glory. Instead of doing, we are called to believe in him. We see in John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We receive Jesus' rescue by simply obeying and believing in God and his words, by believing in who? Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, the Savior sent to save us. 
we see that God saved Israel and they passed through the Red Sea. Through Jesus, God saved us and helped us to pass through from death to life. In, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God delivers us from under the dominion, the domain, the dominion of darkness and sin to the kingdom of his beloved son, where we are freed, redeemed by Jesus, freed from our sin, and accord us a new status, not as slaves under the domain of sin, but we are redeemed and freed from sin, from sin and we now have a new master, a new king and saviour, and his name is Jesus. So in summary, the crossing of the Red Sea is a once-off event to display God's glory. God assures us of his presence. God assures us of his perfect rescue plan. And God assures us that if we trust him, it will result in his praise and glory. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this passage doesn't promise us that God will save us from every trouble or dangers in life. If whatever you are going through in life, perhaps a broken relationship, a bleak and hopeless future, don't look at your circumstances or setback to determine God's love and faithfulness. Look at his rescue plan. Look at his son. In closing, I'd like to share a personal, another personal story with you. This picture here is a picture of my father. So some 20 years ago, my father had a major stroke and later he suffered brain hemorrhage and his life hung in a balance. Although the doctor's prognosis was bleak, I saw the salvation of the Lord. I knew that if God was to rescue him that day, I will praise him. Yet if dad was to die, I will worship the Lord because God's ultimate rescue of my dad comes through his son, Jesus. Man, that dad has already been freed from sin and death for death has lost its sting. From the day that dad believed in Jesus, dad has already crossed over from death to life. The same sea that brought about death to the Egyptians the Israelites merely passed through it to safety to the other side with Moses. I guess that is the same for us when we merely pass through death to the safety to the other side with Jesus. May we not be overwhelmed by the voice of fear and doubt and know that the Lord fights for us. May we echo Moses, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, indeed, you are God alone. You have saw our predicament that we are under the dominion of darkness and sin and Satan and death. And you sent Jesus, your rescue plan, to save us, to redeem us, so that we are freed from the bondage and slavery of sin 
and that we are free in Christ. We are free from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and in future, from the presence of sin. So, Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us. Help us learn to live, to obey you, and not to reject your words. For the rejection of your words will only bring about chaos in our lives. May we live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.